Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back to the show. Today we're going to be talking about China. In fact, we'll be talking about the myth of China and the myth of the China market, which pervaded the thinking among foreign business people at the time. With a booming population of half a billion people in the early 20th century and an underdeveloped infrastructure, industrialists of the Western world and of Japan saw huge potential building railroads in China. The Qing dynasty encouraged foreign investment despite a reputation for being anti-merchant, and the Chinese government also encouraged migration through the massive continental land empire. During the 19th century, port cities grew in size and trade with foreign merchants grew as well. And as the power of foreign traders expanded, especially that of the British, which did a brisk trade in China, so did the king's power over port cities decline. The Opium Wars of the 19th century are probably the best example of this. Despite bans on opium in China, the British and the French persisted in selling the drug, fighting two wars in China to maintain the trade. The Qing Dynasty lost control over the ports, and as a result of these wars, other foreign nations flocked to the coastal cities to take similar advantage of the market and the weak Chinese government. Japan, Germany, Italy, and others carved out spheres of influence in Chinese ports. As trade increased, opportunities inland also materialized. Commercial loans for infrastructure projects saw banks like HSBC, the Hong Kong and Singapore Banking Company, come into China to finance these projects. German, Italian, French, and Japanese banks followed the British example. The United States was a little late to the investment rush. After acquiring the Philippines, however, it pushed for an interimperial or self-regulation of the China market, giving all world powers access to the ports and commercial opportunities. Today, we know it better as the open door policy in which the European and Japanese and Americans agreed to, to a cooperative approach in China. That same approach developed in the banking sector, well, at least for a while. Joining me today is Gassan Moazin, an assistant professor at the Hong Kong Institute for the Humanities and Social Sciences. He's a historian of 19th and 20th century China with a particular interest in the development of the modern Chinese economy. Today, we're talking with Gassan about his book, Foreign Banks and Global Finance in Modern China, Banking on the Chinese Frontier from 1870 to 1919. Welcome to the show, Gassan. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here because I think the topic is one that will be of interest to many of the listeners. The Gilded Age and Progressive Era is, of course, known for industrialization, but it's the the financing that really drives that as well. And your book gets to the, the heart of this, um, but naturally it gets to the heart of it in China rather than any other part of, of the world, which is an important market. Can you just set the scene for us? Why is foreign investment in China so important in this period? And how does foreign banking in China disrupt the the traditions there of their, their commercial traditions. 
Sure. So um, I think in order to understand this, we have to kind of go back to the um, to the to opium wars. Um, China is basically being opened up to uh, foreign trade. You have treaty ports in places like Shanghai, um, where uh, which are basically under foreign control, um, and um, first foreign merchants kind of settle there in order to do uh, yeah, trade with China. But what ha- what happens then rather quickly, um, and uh, is is uh, yeah, what happens then rather quickly is basically that um, you need someone to finance this trade. In the beginning, these trading houses can still do that themselves, um, but there is kind of increasing need for uh, spe- sort of special uh, banks that um, take care of that. And so you have the first foreign banks, primarily British banks, coming in into the in the eighteen so not between eighteen forties and eighteen nineties. And then in between the 1890s and uh, the First World War, which is what my book mainly focuses on, you have also a lot of non-British, um, including American banks, coming in. Um, in terms of investment, um, what basically happens is that China is trying to modernize, and that means that uh, in particular things like railway construction uh, are things that are on the agenda for Chinese modernizers. But of course, that needs a lot of money, and money is rather expensive in China at the time. And uh, at the same time, you have people, particularly in Europe, um, where kind of uh, return rates on investments are relatively low at that time, between 1870s and 1890s, particularly, they look abroad for um, new ways of uh, to invest in China, in a sense, like, uh, you know, you can compare it with what happened with China after the 1970s. And, you know, it's kind of seen as this up and coming market, and people want to invest there. And so this is kind of the other reason why, why these foreign banks come in, because they're kind of the intermediary between the two. Um, yeah, in terms of, because you mentioned that, uh, whether, you know, how, how was the interaction with Chinese commerce? So I think what we need to keep in mind is that um, China was a highly commercialized sort of society. There was, you know, there was, there were very, um, lively markets, you have all sorts of different economic institutions. I think where foreign banks come in, so I, I, I don't see it that much as the, them being disruptive. I just see it, it's more like um, what historians sometimes call institutional voids. So if you basically have this, you, you know, China wanting to engage with the global economy, but you, China does not have modern uh, financial institutions that kind of have a global branch network and that it can act globally. And that's where the foreign banks basically, um, basically come in. So they basically fill this kind of void that is left open by um, by the absence of uh, of Chinese institutions that can uh, that can do that. And just um, uh, if you could just say a little bit more about you started off with the opium wars, and you mentioned British banking as being one of the first. Is it is it because of the opium wars, and is is the rise of other foreign banks? I know you particularly look at German banks, but is the rise of the other banking uh, uh, branches, you know, other nations coming in? A result of the growing commerce that they're doing is it is it part and parcel of that? Um, I think there are several reasons. Well, the, the, I mean, if we think about why first British banks, I think there are sort of two reasons for that. First of all, um, I mean, up certainly in the in the sort of first decades after the uh, after the Opium War, um, Britain is the main trading partner of of China, and so that means that kind of explains why. Um, you would have British banks particularly interested. At the same time, in general, um, the 19th century kind of sees the growth of multinational banking and um, Britain there again as a leader. And uh, what what happens actually quite a bit uh, in China in the early period is that you have um, British banks that are primarily first based in India that then kind of expand themselves uh, to to China, but they in a sense already have kind of an infrastructure um, in place that they just have to put up another branch in a place like Hong Kong, for example. So... Um, 
Uh, yeah, so I, I think that explains why Britain comes first. And yeah, I think um, why in the 1890s you have other um, non-British prince come in, I think it has to do with the expansion of Western Empire. It has to do with um, other kind of, I mean, Germany, obviously, a, a kind of new nation state wanting to come in and, and, and growing uh, in the China trade, just as other places like Japan, um, the United States, I would also uh, see in that as well. And again, that then... You know, you want to have investment and trade with China, and then you want to have a vehicle for that that can finance all of that or be the intermediary. And I think that's when foreign banks then come in. So that makes perfect logical sense. And I suspect that's probably why the historiography has developed the way it has. One of the things that your book accomplishes is to change our view of the imperial framework, or at least, you know, not diminishing the imperial framework, but just saying that there are other reasons why these banks are coming in. And having read the book, I understand this, but could you tell listeners how your book challenges the prevailing view that foreign banks were merely agents of empire and that there's other there's other agents here as well? Yeah, sure. So I think, um, I mean, what I tried to do in the book is basically get us out of this uh, uh, rather traditional view of you know, uh, the the foreign banks came in and they kind of exploited the Chinese uh, Chinese economy and so on and plundered everything and controlled everything. Uh, and I should say that I'm, I mean, uh, there is other scholarship that more recently has sort of started to uh, challenge that as well. And so I'm kind of building on that. But but I'm I mean, what I basically try to do in the book is kind of complicate things and show that um, power relations are not quite as uh, straightforward as um, a lot of the previous literature has kind of suggested and. Um, you have these foreign banks that are always pretty much um, dependent on cooperating with Chinese officials, Chinese bankers, because they can't just reach into the Chinese economy at will, or they can't just make uh, deals with the Chinese government uh, and just impose their will. They always have to work together. They have to kind of find um, people on the Chinese side of things that uh, have common interests and with whom they can kind of uh, work together. And that does that also means that in many cases, the foreign banks are not the kind of the the actors with most leverage or most uh, that are the most powerful in a particular relationship, but rather it's really a give and take, and there's a lot of inter- interdependence going on. And I think that's sort of what I what I uh, what I kind of tried to show uh, in the book. It reminds me a little bit of Gary Lundestad's thesis in where he talks about empire by invitation during the Cold War and the European and American uh, context, largely about the Marshall Plan and the development of an interdependent uh, transatlantic trade. Do you think that where you're getting to now in your scholarship is because of a, a maturity on this topic that we started out with a sort of sense that, uh, you know, this was this was imperial, but now we're moving away from it being exclusively that and giving the, the Chinese agency in, 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 in the, com- the commercial functions of the state at the time are, are, are just a maturing of the historiography? I mean, I would I would hope so. That's I mean, that's certainly the uh, kind of direction that I would uh that I felt, uh, you know, when I was doing the research, that uh, I hope the scholarship would uh, would move into uh, move, moving in, in that particular direction, because I think um, sort of taking a more detailed and a more on the ground and a more um, um, sort of approach that kind of really looks at how things work uh, on the ground, that on, on the sort of the local level, that seemed to be uh, to me the most fruitful way of of approaching the topic. Um, I should say that. Uh, in a sense, the way I'm coming at the topic might also be a bit different from at least a lot of other historians that have worked on this uh, in the West, because I'm, I, I mean, I was trained as a China historian. I'm not really a historian of empire or anything like that. I was uh, kind of 
you know, train as someone who has to go to the Chinese sources, has to kind of understand the Chinese actors. That's kind of the the first um, uh, the first task that I was sort of uh, yeah, that was a what I what I focused on, and so that I, I guess also led me um, to kind of you know trying to understand even more like what did the Chinese actors do. Um, and uh, what what is Chinese agency here? What do the Chinese sources tell us? Because I think that's also key. Um, if you kind of uh, want to get away from um, this, uh, yeah, this kind of imperial framework a bit, then Chinese sources are quite helpful because I think they kind of uh, reveal quite quite clearly um, how things work on the Chinese side, and you really need that in order to kind of undig the um, the Chinese agency in the whole story. I think. So do, do you think that the reason why other historians may have missed this angle is because there's that lack of engagement with Chinese sources, especially in, say, American readings of open door policies or of European views of international banking and, and colonization? So I think there's sort of a twofold um, problem here. I think on the one hand side, you have, of course, Chinese historians, not that many, but some that have looked at this. Um, and they, of course, can read the Chinese sources, but they've got the problem that they don't have the, um, they normally don't have access to foreign archival sources, which you, of course, also need in order to, to research foreign banks. Um, but they, certainly traditional scholarship was very much still in this kind of, uh, very much influenced by Marxism and, and kind of looking at um, how this all fits into a uh, kind of a Marxist framework and their foreign banks and foreign finance are kind of traditionally seen as very much part of empire. But yeah, in, in, on the side of, of, of kind of people in the West working on this, yes, I think, um, I mean, a lot of the histories that have been written um, were like kind of just institutional histories, uh, even commission histories of foreign banks, which means that, you know, that then you have kind of a very much a focus on the bank itself and trying to describe every detail of the, the particular bank's history, but without really making reference uh, to Chinese actors. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think on the Western side, that really has been um, a problem rather that uh, this kind of lack of, um, I, I feel kind of the engagement in many cases with, with the Chinese side of things is only superficial. It's of course, you have to talk about China because this particular bank, a particular bank operates there. Um, but I think it kind of doesn't, often doesn't really go beyond that. And the focus is very much on, okay, this is, these are the archives of the bank that I have, maybe diplomatic archives as well. And that's what I'm using. And um, that, of course, kind of limits very much um, the kind of perspective that you have on, I would, again, say particularly on, on Chinese actors, because for that, you need the Chinese sources to really understand what's Absolutely. going on. Absolutely. I mean, that makes perfect logic. Um, all right. Well, let's let's delve into the the, the book's real, uh, uh, you know, the 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 depths of the book are really about the banks in China. And so tell us about the banks. And your book obviously looks most closely at German banks. I say obviously. When I when I first picked up the book, I, I thought, oh, I'm going to read about American banks in here. I should have I should have uh, read the introduction first. Uh, but what we what, what you look most closely at is the German Asiatic Bank. And so can you tell us about German bankers and some of the other major players, uh, maybe delving into the British or the Americans? Sure. Um, yeah, so as I said, sort of the 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 kind of um, the, the first banks that kind of get established in China were mainly British banks, and I mean some of these names will still be um, familiar. Probably HSBC, the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation, is kind of a major player and remains the leading multinational bank in China that kind of comes about in the 1860s. Um, and uh, I mean, we think of the HSBC certainly later towards the 1890s, early 1900s as a British bank, but it's really international bank. So you have all kinds of different, you have Germans even involved in in the founding of the bank. It's mainly kind of 
a bunch of merchants that feel, well, we want to have a, we need a bank that kind of finances um, or pro provides financial facilities for our trade. And um, uh, so that's how the HSBC comes about. And there are certain other um, um, and British banks, as I said, quite a few actually that uh, kind of have a base in India first and then um, uh, come into uh, into China. But yeah, I think HSBC, Standard, Standard Chartered, are a few of the British banks that are um, uh, are quite prominent. And, and um as I said, then sort of in the 1890s, you have um, more um, non-British banks that come in. Uh, the particular German bank uh, that I focus on is the Deutsche Asiatische Bank, which translates into German Asiatic Bank, um, which kind of comes, so it's, it's established in 1889, opens its doors in Shanghai in 1890. Um, it's kind of established by um, really a broad swath of, of leading German banks that are interested in China, as I said. Reasons and then in, in, in case of the German bankers, the reasons were really mainly investments. So they really saw this, you know, dream. China is the last huge country without railways. Germany is industrializing. Um, German bankers have a lot of ties with uh, German industry. So the idea was, okay, we're going to finance railway construction, and you know, we we're going to have it built with German materials, German engineers, and so on and so forth. Um, and so the German bankers established, also supported by the German government. So the German government also was quite keen and having a German bank on the ground because they also saw China as this big export market and um, they were what they were unhappy with was that, I mean, German merchants had been doing trade in China even before there was, you know, the establishment of the German empire. And they were very happy to do their trade with, uh, to be financed by British banks. But the German government didn't really like that. They wanted to have sort of a autarkic block of, of German commerce that could just make sure that them, um, uh, yeah, there was not that much dependence on British finance, so they so the, so the German government supported this establishment as well, and so this is how, how the, um, the the kind of DAB came uh, or the Deutsche Deutsche Bank DAB came came about, and uh, what you then have in the sort of two and a half decades before World War One is really a uh, you know a rapid influx of foreign banks coming into uh, into China um, that includes um, you know Japanese banks, the Yokohama Specie Bank is probably most important, which is sort of very much a Sort of a, a creation of the Japanese um, uh, 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 government, but yeah, you also have American bankers, and I'm happy to talk a bit a, a bit more about that um, come in. And uh, yeah, it, it's kind of like uh, you know, all sorts of leading countries want to have their own bank, uh, their bank, own bank in in China at the time. And these banks kind of, well, they are competitors, of course, uh, but there's also a lot of uh, cooperation. So they will uh, certainly cooperate in the banking sector. Of course, you have to have that. Um, as you have today, but uh, they also cooperate in terms of uh, raising money for China on, on foreign capital markets quite a lot. And uh, so um, while I do focus on the German bank as a case study, I think in terms of narrative, that always helps with the book. But well, before um, we get to the Americans, the book, can I ask you, know, you something about what you're, sure. how you're, you're framing it as well? Because I think this is really interesting and this gets to the crux of your argument. You call them international banks, but clearly they've got this connection to a home state and they're backed presumably by capital, primarily from uh, their, their home state. So how do you make that distinction from them being a state operation with, uh, you know, German or American or British capital? How do you distinguish that from being an international bank that is operating in, in a different fashion? Well, I don't really, I, I, well, in terms of the, the kind of um, the terminology I'd like to use, I think multinational banks is probably um, most useful because I think that just means, you know, you have a bank that kind of has assets or that, that kind of um, operates across different countries. 
Um, in terms of state banks, I mean, I, I really uh, try to get away from that because I think that is sort of a simplistic view that still is quite common in some of the older scholarships, certainly, in the sense of like, okay, this uh, is a German bank, so they just do what the German government says, for example. Um, in, the, in the particular case study that I look at, I, this becomes ra rather clear because it's uh, you have these German bankers who are very cosmopolitan international. They're happy to work together with the British or the French or you know whoever really they have connections uh, throughout the world really with other bankers, and then you have uh, and they are mostly after profit of course so they're not interested in like kind of doing political investments and just investing in a, in a particular project because uh, this is uh, good for the German president in China or something like that uh, and, and that's that is of course what the German diplomats want so if you read the German diplomatic archives is uh, you know as time goes on there's just criticism over criticism and conflicts going on with the um, uh, uh, with the uh, with the German bankers because they uh, they just don't feel that these ge that this German bank uh, does really what they had hoped um, it would do and that means support German commerce rather they just do what is good for uh, their own balance sheet and that's kind of their primary um, their primary um, objective I think in the end if we look at foreign banks at that time there's kind of a broad spectrum you have you do have certain banks uh, for example the Jap Japanese Yokohama Specie Bank I think is a good example here which are very much, you know, um, government, uh, well, at least in part government funded and government controlled, and they have kind of a very clear policy um, uh, objective, whereas other banks are kind of in, in the middle. So with the German bank I look at, yeah, of course, there was, particularly in the beginning, um, government support, um, but uh, well, I think that kind of becomes more complicated as, as time goes on. And then you have banks like HSBC, which is, as I said, in the 1860s, 1870s, it is it has a from from the start, particularly when it comes to kind of where to raise money abroad, has a particularly strong British connection. But it kind of moves into becoming a a, a British bank in the 1890s because you kind of do need uh, for certain things in China, um, particularly when it comes to the big loans, you kind of need a diplomatic connection. Uh, uh, a foreign banker can't just go to the uh, to the imperial court and get an audience with uh, with uh, the uh, the Chinese foreign ministry, you kind of need to have a diplomat that goes with you. And so, yeah, so you have also some banks that kind of grow into a, a bank that kind of needs um, a, a kind of a national home in some way. But I think, again, my my um, what I try to do is to complicate things a bit and show that, you know, there's a spectrum. And we have to really kind of take these institutions as um, institutions on their in their own right and look what they actually do. Uh, uh, in negotiations or in the operations in China, rather than assuming that the home government is kind of behind everything. I think you do complicate things quite a bit, and I think in a, in a positive way, and especially like, I, I really like the way you refer to the banks as frontier banks, because that to me really is what you're getting at here. So can you explain the term that you use and why you think it's the, the most uh, most appropriate one? Sure. Um, I mean, this kind of comes out of... Uh, um, well, it comes from two angles. I mean, first of all, there are historians, well, I mean, I think in general, sort of not just historians of China, but um, work on frontiers and, and kind of frontier spaces has been uh, has been quite a growth in the past few decades. Um, historians of China have also looked at that, so I kind of built on that scholarship, but I've also got this idea from uh, basically some of the oldest scholarship on on, on um, banking in the uh, on the American frontier, actually, uh, which is... Um, uh, in, in, in terms of conceptually why I came up with this particular term is, yeah, thinking about the frontier, a place where you have kind of different flows of capital commodities coming together, um, 
uh, different empires overlapping, including the Chinese Empire. And you have kind of these uh, these yeah frontier spaces where um, things are rather ambiguous and hybrid in a way. You don't have um, you have kind of these actors like foreign banks that can kind of occupies a lot of in-between spaces between different empires and different actors and kind of, um, um, yeah, there are kind of a lot of opportunities that that open up, but for particularly for the foreign banks, what I liked about this idea of operating in the frontier is also that it's in a sense limiting. So the foreign banks, for example, go do not go into the into the Chinese hinterland. They always they sit in these treaty ports and they have to kind of, in order to reach into the, uh, into the banking sector, into the Chinese economy, they have to kind of cooperate with Chinese actors. And um, I, I guess the, the, the concept of frontier bank also helps me understand uh, or helps me kind of think through um, the kind of hybrid nature of these kind of foreign banks themselves. Like these are foreign banks, but they operate in China. They are, um, of course, mainly staffed by foreigners. So a, a bank like the German Asiatic Bank, they would be mostly German bankers, but they also have a Chinese department in their um, in their bank and they have Chinese staff and they need this Chinese staff in order to actually be able to operate and, and, and uh, engage with Chinese customers, which is really important for their business. Um, and uh, they would have um, they would have dealings with uh, all sorts of different diplomats. Uh, they would have dealings with diplomats of their home government, but also with Chinese uh, diplomats in important contexts. And they have they really depend on these sort of transnational networks that span all sorts of different actors, not just in China, but actually reaching back into Europe. And so I think um, kind of this ambiguity of of kind of um, Operating in this space where you have all these overlapping flows of commodities, capital, and, and empires, but also the hybrid nature of the particular banks that I look at, um, that kind of uh, led me to um, think a bit more about the uh, them on the on the frontier and as frontier banks, because I think that really, um, yeah, at least I, I guess I was sort of trying to find a way of of um, bringing together and, and expressing this kind of ambiguity and then the, the, this terminology kind of helped with that. I think it's useful, especially given all of the the baggage that comes with the term frontier. And as you say, there's been, there's been a re-examination of frontiers and borders in recent, uh, in recent years. Um, look, naturally, you know, I want to ask about American banks. Uh, the, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big, I have a big research interest in the open door and, and the way it reshapes uh, China and, and the Far East more generally. Um, they're late to the party, the Americans. They don't get a bank there until later. Then the Germans are already there. The, the British are already there. But what part do they play in the, the commercial life of, of China after they do arrive? Basically, um, the main American bank that comes in is the International Banking Corporation, um, which uh, is established in 1901 and opens uh, in um, uh, in China in 1902. And uh, I mean, it it uh, then later is taken over by Citibank, which we of course still uh, still uh, know now. And um, sort of from again having not focused on this particular bank, what I can see is that it becomes a leading uh, a leading foreign bank uh, at that time and operates very much along the same lines as as as, as what I can see with uh, with other foreign banks. Um, so in terms of trade finance, that's sort of you know it's it's kind of a pretty uh, pretty common uh, picture that we see there. Um, what is sort of a bit more interesting, I think, is uh, the in- involvement of American bankers in kind of investment um, in uh, in China, because they, I feel there's certainly this this idea that yeah they come in somewhat later. So um, if we look at kind of investment uh, uh, in China, and I'm talking about big loans that are floated for for China in uh, uh, abroad, um, it's really first well Britain for the first few decades after the 1870s is clearly the 
I mean, it's it's the international financial center anyways, but it is also the main place where China raises money. And then you have kind of France and Germany come in uh, and uh, New York and the United States then come uh, much later. It's really only towards the end of the Qing dynasty. So, um, you know, Qing dynasty falls in 1911 uh, that, that, that the U.S. comes in. Uh, and then they do, um, so they do join uh, the sort of the big consortium together with uh, British, French and uh, German banks. And um, they do float uh, loans for the Chinese government. Um, but what is interesting then is uh, that uh, actually here, I feel the kind of uh, the political backlog seems to be rather important because what basically happens is that um, you do have these, uh, you do have an Amer- American banking group that is involved in, the, in, in these sorts of loans. And then the Qing dynasty falls in 1911 and you have a new Republican government come in. Uh, and this government uh, has the problem that um, it has... Well, it basically has no money. It is out of money. And so they look towards foreign banks again to uh, kind of uh, basically uh, raise a large loan um, for, for the Chinese government. But what, what happens then is that um, because of the political instability, these banks are not willing to um, uh, float along without quite a strict control uh, um, uh, clauses, meaning that they want to have uh, revenues that are under foreign control designated as, as, as collateral for the loan. And then uh, Wilson is elected, and he kind of uh, is the one that then, or this election then, or, or he is the one that kind of then leads to the, the American bankers actually retreating from this because these um, uh, these uh, particular um, uh, these yeah these particular uh, loan uh, uh, conditions are supposedly too uh, too strict, and and then that's kind of uh, that's when they. Um, uh, kind of leave uh, leave this particular consortium, and of course, uh, this all then again changes in uh, in World War One because in World War One, all these kind of this this, this cosmopolitan kind of uh, in interaction uh, dissolves, and and all these consortia, and uh, then you actually see um, American banks coming in uh, rather strongly again during the war and, and offering at least offering money uh, to the Chinese uh, to the Chinese government. It's fascinating to see how there's a, almost a pecking order as well amongst these uh, these these groups. You know, they're very cosmopolitan. They very much work together. But London is the still the dominant power really throughout the the period. Um, what about the bankers themselves? I mean, you you mentioned them quite a bit, and I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little about a little bit about them and about their their Chinese counterparts. Who are the people that are actually making these deals happen? Sure. So, um, I mean, in terms of the, well, I'm going to take my my example of the, of the German banker. So what, um, in terms of the, the German bankers that are basically active in this whole kind of China, um, uh, this this kind of, the whole kind of uh, area of China and so on, um, I think uh, you have a lot of, I mean, first of all, on the ground. So in a place like Shanghai, you would have a branch that would normally be um, led by a somewhat senior uh, German banker. So um, ideally someone that would have had already some experience uh, in China that could even sometimes be a uh, someone actually without a banking background, but that is just has worked there as a merchant for a while and kind of knows what's going on on the ground. Um, but then you would actually have a lot of young bankers. So there are several kind of... Uh, uh, Cases where I can see that you you would have um, you know a German banker that would have kind of done an apprenticeship when they were like maybe eighteen or something like that in in Germany for a few years, then they were often sent uh, to London because again that was sort of the uh, the the center of uh, international finance and it was kind of seen as a good training ground um, for 
uh, sort of learning uh, the ropes of of, uh, of doing international banking, and then they would be sent to China. And often, I mean, this was sort of a, for many of them a big adventure. Of course, you you go out into this. Uh, I mean, it's even today, I would think, but uh, certainly then you go out to China, unknown, uh, completely unknown country, and everything is new and so on. Um, and um, they were often given quite early on um, quite a bit of responsibility. So they would be uh, put in, in general, uh, sort of you, you could climb, in a sense, the ladder of responsibility more quickly uh, abroad, and that was a positive um, thing. Um, yeah, so so that's kind of what what we what we have uh, on the Chinese side. And there's kind of, there's this whole kind of treaty port life that is kind of very, peculiar like a lot of these um i mean for example most of these foreign bankers would never learn chinese and they would very much stay in their in their enclaves there are exceptions to that um so there are kind of china specialists that also develop in, in these foreign banks but the, for the most part these uh, they would um uh, kind of stay in these enclaves uh, for most of the time um but the other side of the story is then kind of the senior bankers who sit in places like berlin and london and so on and those are um really senior people that are not primarily occupied with China, but they would sit on the supervisory board of the bank, for example, and they would kind of have the look that the bank is kind of overall doing okay, but they are also the ones um, who have all these international connections. Uh, you know, if you are a Berlin banker, uh, they would have connections to Paris, New York, uh, uh, London, and they could then, particularly when it came to these big loan deals that um, uh, were... Uh, Kind of done internet, sort of in terms of international cooperation, quite a lot. And then they, these networks really come into play um, uh, a lot uh, of these senior um, German bankers. Um, then talking about the Chinese counterparts. So, um, in I mean, again, this is sort of something I, I try to really um, uh, emphasize is that if we look at the Chinese banking sector, for example, yes, you, you have these foreign banks and they can operate quite freely in the treaty ports, not under the control of the Chinese government. Um, but uh, they, if they want to do things like, and of course, as a bank, you do want to do that. You want to use your working capital, for example, and loan it out to the, the Chinese banking sector. Because these foreign bankers didn't really have much of an understanding, they didn't know Chinese, and they didn't have much of an understanding of the Chinese banking sector, they had to rely on their Chinese staff and, and, and their Chinese um, kind of business partners for that. And uh, what I kind of try to show is that these um, uh, these Chinese partners often were in their own right um, leading Chinese business people. They would have their own banks, their own businesses, and they would actually incorporate often um, these uh, foreign banks as you know sources of cheap capital in particular into their larger business network. Uh, and uh, I think that kind of then turns the perspective. We don't just look at, you know, how do the foreign banks kind of control these Chinese banks and whatnot, but actually uh, it's also the other way uh, around in a way. And, and it also has to do with the fact that um, uh, actually in terms of risk, um, these foreign banks are kind of pulled into quite a lot of risky business practices of the Chinese bankers. And it's kind of in, in a sense this similar thing that happens on the kind of, if we look at the other side of the business of the foreign banks, the bigger loan business, which is that, there again, um, you have relationships that build up with particular uh, Chinese officials that are more open to using foreign capital. There were, of course, also people that opposed this vehemently, yeah, but uh, there were certainly also Chinese officials that were rather open to that, financing railways, for example, with Chinese, uh, with foreign capital. And uh, so for that, um, you have kind of these kind of partnerships also that, that come out and you have networks that are... Um, really rely on having common interests in a particular project, let's say a railway or something like that. 
And so this kind of cooperation, I think, goes on really throughout if you look at the activities of foreign banks. I mean, the people are really interesting. I'm, I'm wondering about what risks they take going to China, the, the foreign bankers. And then also maybe you could talk about that, but also talk about what risk the banks take as well, because China, for as lucrative as it might be, it seems like there's, well, you, and you already mentioned the revolution in 1911, but there's other risks too. So maybe you could fill us in on those. Yeah, sure. And I think, I mean, risk, kind of risk management, risk assessment is something that I think is, I mean, I think it's actually a, a more useful lens in a sense to to look at, um, at at bankers and because banking is always, it always has to do with risk and that's something there to kind of constantly um, uh, worry about. In, in general, I should, I should say that, I mean, multinational banking um, um, was a rather risky business. I mean, it's, it's, it's a difference if you are kind of, um, if you if you operate in well as a German bank in Germany where you know the laws you know the practices you know how the banking sector works and so on if you have to do that over long distances uh, and if you have to do that in a country that is rather foreign to you there's a general operational risk of you know things can just uh, uh, go wrong uh, and uh, there is um, uh, well there is quite a gap certainly in the, in the case of the German bankers uh, a huge distance to Berlin of course and and having to kind of go back and forth, and and there's always the question, you know, how much, um, how much leeway do the bankers in Berlin give the people in Shanghai and 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 uh, in in the foreign treaty ports and so on? Uh, there was also the problem of exchange risk. So the problem is basically that uh, Germany was on the gold standard um, by that time. Uh, a lot of the kind of leading Western countries were on the gold standard, but China was kind of. Uh, well, in terms of currencies, it, it was generally rather difficult. There were a lot of different uh, local currencies, but generally silver was uh, was most important, uh, at least for the business that these uh, foreign bankers were doing. And so the exchange rate between silver and gold is always something that they, they have to worry about. Um, but then in terms of um, these large-scale loans, yeah, you certainly have uh, what we normally call sovereign risk. So if you are a country like China goes to London to borrow, investors normally wanted to know what is the risk of investing and basically lending money to China and uh, that would then determine the interest rates and, and so on. And in terms of assessing that, that actually becomes a really uh, a difficult proposition because China doesn't, um, for the most, you know, the, until the last years of the Qing, they don't have a budget or something like that. What we think about now where we can, where you can kind of see, okay, what is the income of this, uh, uh, you know, the country as a whole, particular state or something like that, a particular uh, branch of the government that, that doesn't really um, exist. And so the bankers kind of have to, um, well, they can, so because China's customs revenues are kind of uh, managed by an agency that is, is is manned by foreigners mainly. So for a while that works out because they give very detailed reports on this uh, income, but then once that is used up, it becomes much more difficult. And so this is sort of a whole um, separate issue of how do I actually create knowledge about Chinese finance in order to understand and assess risk um, yeah, and then the final, uh, the final, I think, um, theme in terms of risk that comes up is political risk. Uh, I mean, what I'm kind of trying to show is that I think until until 1911, uh, things are rather stable, um, and it's kind of interesting. Although there's quite a lot of criticism of the Qing Dynasty, certainly not reforming enough and whatnot, the foreign bankers are really quite critical. But once it's gone and once it falls, they are quite um, uneasy about what's uh, what what is about to come because, uh, uh, yeah, basically 1911 revolution breaks out and uh, the, the Qing falls and you have a, a new regime that in many ways is still kind of has the same people in power, but um, um, there's a lot of instability, chaos going on. And so uh, that 
raises political risk and, and the foreign bankers then, for example, are more reluctant to lend. And um, the other big event is, of course, World War One, which kind of, particularly for the German banks, um, bankers uh, changes, changes a lot because they are now, uh, uh, certainly after 1917, after China enters the war, um, they are enemy subjects. And uh, of course, that's, uh, you know, they're being, they're, they're being liquidated then and so on. So that is uh, then political risk at its extreme kind of, uh, and, and kind of spells the, at least temporary end of the, of the bank's operations. Yeah. And your book also talks about previous conflicts as well, whether it be the Boxer Rebellion or it was the war with Japan in 1895. So there's quite a bit of political risk built in. It's amazing in a sense that for so many years, they're able to continue without budgets, <clears throat> to get these foreign uh, investors in. So that's a really incredible story. How does the international banking story over that century-long decline of China, how does banking explain the decline? Sure, yeah. I, I mean, I don't want to sort of uh, go too far and say that, you know, foreign banking kind of a, um, necessarily explains the uh, decline in itself. Whether, I mean, uh, it's not just a story of decline in general, I would say. But I think what I can say is kind of this... Um, um this idea of the again idea of the institutional void i really quite like that that was quite helpful in writing the book because i think we can kind of use foreign banks as a sort of benchmark and seeing okay china tries to industrialize and modernize but something uh well some things are missing certainly from what would have made that possible uh and and one of those things i think is uh, sort of a modern um internationally operating banking system or banking institutions. And I think that's where foreign banks come in. They have to be the intermediaries. And what I kind of try to tease out a bit in the in the conclusion is that, um, so foreign banks come in and they, first of all, come in mainly in order to finance foreign trade. And that's clearly like an institutional void that is, in, that is there, but they actually spread their business quite, you know, they, they, they issue currency, they take on deposits, they do all kinds of other stuff. And I think, the reason for that, again, is that there are no modern Chinese banking institutions in the late 19th century that, that are at least dominant. It's really only just starting out. Um, and it's only really becoming prominent in the 1920s uh, that can kind of fill this, this larger void and therefore foreign banks become so prominent. And what I kind of try to show in the conclusion a bit is that once modern Chinese banks that are really kind of that are built after sort of Western models uh, really come to prominence, then the kind of role of foreign banks also contracts quite a bit. So I think of the golden era of foreign banks and comes to an end after after World War One, in 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 big part because modern Chinese banks kind of come into come into the picture, and uh, you know they also then are um, you know very efficient and 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 uh, offer modern uh, banking services, um, and so they yeah that that kind of under and undust this kind of institutional void, this large institutional void, and shrinks it quite a bit. Uh, where where foreign banks are trading. That's interesting. You, in a way, you bypass one of the questions that was that was in my mind, which is how does World War One transform the landscape of the banking sector in China? Because obviously, you've mentioned that the German banks are going to be liquidated, but what does it mean for the balance of power of the other banks? I know your you know your book makes the point of saying that they're cooperative and they're almost interimperial in a way in that sense, but but also they're you mentioned they're competitive as well. So what happens during World War One and immediately after World War One to the banking sector? Sure. Um, so I think World War One is um, uh, so that's I mean that's the final chapter in the book, and I think it's it was very interesting to to look at that, particularly also sort of as we now think about you know globalization, deglobalization, uh, and uh, sort of um, 
uh, um, yeah, how do these two processes kind of come together? I mean, what basically happens in World War One is that um, yeah, you have this very much you know very cosmopolitan atmosphere in the treaty ports. A lot of cooperation. These people would socialize together as well. Um, there would be friendships along, uh, you know, very much um, uh, kind of uh, across national lines. You have even individuals that are very much, uh, I mean, I kind of highlight uh, one of the German bankers who is uh, who is comes from an originally German family, but grows up in Scotland and is kind of, uh, you know, he's very welcome in both British and German clubs before the war. But then the war comes in and the kind of cosmopolitan voices uh, kind of are on the retreat very much. And People that were have had all along been kind of more nationalistically, um, uh, or nationalistic in their in their in their wishes and how things should work. That were more against, uh, for example, uh, um, German British cooperation in banking and so on. They come to the fore. They come become really prominent. Of course, bolstered also by the general political background and, and, and you know that um, officially now German subjects were enemies. Even though China remains neutral until 1917, but in any case, there there couldn't be any. Uh, more cooperation, and so I feel this just as elsewhere in the world, where where kind of what we want is this backlash against globalization. You have that uh, in 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 China as well, and so all this, a lot of these kind of um, uh, mechanisms that work quite well between the banks and both cooperation on 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 kind of the level of international finance, but also in the bank sector, kind of dissolve, and um, uh, yeah, and for the German bankers, it's really just uh, about kind of trying to. Um, do what they can and, 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 and to hedge the risk that 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 uh, that is uh, coming up that if China declares um, uh, a war, um, and so yeah, this this all comes apart. And uh, again, I, I don't really look at the 1920s in my book, but but uh, certainly on the international level, um, um, yeah, and other historians have worked on this. Uh, there is a kind of a trying to reconstitute that, but I don't think uh, this cosmopolitan uh, cooperation ever comes together quite uh, as much. Um, as it was in the pre-World War One uh, uh, period, but uh, yeah, in general, I think uh, um, yeah, World War One in my story that I tell is kind of this uh, this, but it's kind of an end to this kind of cosmopolitan global globalization story that is that is told in the other five chapters of the book. That kind of seems to all fall apart uh, in World War One. It's a great way to end things in a way because there's this. It seems like there's a contemporary par- parallel, whether we're talking about globalization and the backlash against uh, uh, global commerce and trade and, and financing. Um, what's I mean, this show very much wants to connect the past with the present. That's something. And I know that's a big debate in the, the world of history right now. But um, and, and you can you can tell me that, you know, there's no connections, but it seems like there could be some for today. So what's the importance for, you know, your book and the story of frontier banking in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, what's the importance for today? Sure. Um, so I think, uh, I mean, I, uh, yeah, I don't want to sort of uh, uh, overdo the, the historical parallels, but I think what, um, um, well, to firstly comment on on the kind of idea of globalization, deglobalization, I think um, what we can certainly see as a parallel is that uh, for most of the, the, most of the story that the book tells is, um, is about globalization and kind of commerce is at the, at the, uh, forefront of things and and these kind of the bankers that I look at are pretty free in order in terms of kind of uh, um, operating across uh, borders and, and and national boundaries cooperating with uh, with other uh, with bankers of other nationalities and 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 so on but uh, what one does change that and I feel I'm I mean what I certainly feel what is now that we are I think also in a period of deglobalization what is kind of um 
uh, coming out quite strongly is, of course, that, yeah, these kind of more nationalistic voices come to the fore. And um, you kind of see that, uh, yeah, the, 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 the commercial in itself becomes much more political and whether or not a deal can really be carried out or um, th- certain flows of capital can happen or not um, takes on a much more uh, political angle. And, and some people are, are very happy with that. I mean, it, it's kind of interesting that, um, and I mentioned that in the book, is that these German diplomats are actually quite happy after 1914 in China. And because uh, now, yes, the, all the German merchants have to go to the German bank because they can't go to the British anymore. And so that's actually what they want. That's not necessarily what the German bankers want. Um, but yeah, that's the kind of... Um, uh, that's kind of, yeah, the, the German diplomats are quite happy about this. Um, I think in general about the, in terms of the parallel between foreign banking now in China and foreign banking um, uh, in the period I look at, uh, yeah, I think, again, I think the main difference that we really see uh, is that um, China, probably because foreign banks were so powerful uh, in um, uh, in the period um, uh, before 1914, they have been very cautious in letting foreign banks in again uh, after 1978. And so the uh, there are very clear guardrails that, that, that kind of um, uh, circumscribe what, what foreign banks can do. But also the, the other big difference is that the Chinese banks are major players, not just in China now, certainly in China, but also globally. And so, you know, if we think about um, you know all these Western banks, Japanese banks being very uh, prominent uh, in the uh, in the 19th century, early 20th century. Uh, now we can probably see that Chinese banks also become kind of uh, major players, particularly in the developing uh, in developing countries. Uh, and so this is another, I think, uh, kind of um, quite a difference. I think I would say to uh, to to the period I look at. I, I've got so many more questions about the contemporary Chinese context, not least the real estate market and the, the banking crisis that's sort of unfolding as we speak now, but certainly the Belt and Road Initiative and the, the funding that's going into uh, other countries around the world is fascinating. This book is important, I think, for just that reason. And I think that, you know, you've done a really great job of reframing this to put um, Chinese bankers into the picture, the Chinese marketplace into the picture. And and for that reason, I'm grateful. I don't think you get away from the imperial entirely, which is good because I don't think we can avoid that. But uh, I just have to congratulate you, Gassan, for a book that is, it's really uh, thought provoking and I'm sure is going to be on reading lists. Thanks a million. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed this. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode.